Wow. My wife just came in and threw tater tots all around the room. Um, <laughs> that was that was kind of random. Um, <laughs> I really wish we were doing a video. <laughs> I, I would definitely appreciate video, yes. Yep. Um, so, all right, well, now I guess I have to eat the tater tots off the floor. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hello and welcome to episode 75 of Ruby Rogues. I'm David Brady, and I'm sitting in for Chuck and James at the same time, who are uh, on vacation in Hawaii and can't be bothered to uh, do their weekly podcast. So um, we're short two rogues, but we are up to guests. So um, today on the podcast, uh, we have Abdi Grimm. Hello, hello. And we have Josh Susser. Um, yes, I'm appearing here on a Creative Commons misattribution license. <laughs> um, we have uh, Jeremy Heingardner. Hello, and I am not a lawyer. <laughs> and we also have Chris Wilson. Yeah, same here. Okay. Um, so I guess uh, just to start us off, um, we're going to be talking about open source licenses today. And this is a fun, complex uh, issue. I remember sitting in on a panel years and years ago at a Linicon talking about the, the, the subtle vagaries and evils of, you know, LGPL versus GPL and, and that good stuff. Uh, and people get completely just bent out of shape about this. Um, but before we get into that, um, I wanted to give our guests a chance to kind of do a longer introduction. Uh, Chris, why don't we start with you? Uh, your Twitter handle is E and that's not very rational. So, uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm Chris Wilson. I'm a developer up in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, at a Ruby consulting development shop called Bendyworks. Um, yeah. So I my my handle and some of the other uh, the other ways I identify myself is kind of a science nerd. So I've I've sort of always been in science. I gave a little spiel at my at the Bendyworks internal conference recently. Uh, all about how to build a particle accelerator. Very cool. Jeremy, do you want to tell us about you? Sure. Uh, Jeremy Heingardner. I'm a developer in uh, Boulder, Colorado. Uh, used to work for Collective Intellect, and now I work for Oracle. We were acquired this year. So have a couple of interesting tidbits to uh, to um, talk about in terms of uh, acquisitions and licenses, and that should be part of an interesting talk, too. Very cool. So in the pre-call, we talked about all of the business that we forgot to start with. So, um, let's start, let's pause the, the regular podcast and, um, we all have business to go through. Um, Josh, do you want to start with the Ruby Newbie project? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, uh, remind our listeners that we have an ongoing listener challenge. We're doing something we're calling the Ruby Newbie Challenge. Uh, we have a link uh, on our webpage describing the, the contest. Uh, we want to, we want to find a couple people who are new to the Ruby community to come on the show and talk to us about what it's like being new to Ruby. And uh, so we're doing a record a video challenge. 
Uh, we're making a, a slight modification to the rules. We're going to ask that you email us a link to your video when you put it up. Uh, and the point of that is that we want to have your email address so that we can email you some cool stuff. So we ha we are we are setting some stuff up with uh, with uh, various uh, educational services who do Ruby stuff, and we want to get you some some good free stuff for uh, as a thank you and an incentive for doing the video. So. Um, we'll have more information on that uh, on the web page soon, and we'll mention that in next week's show, too. So that's it. Cool. Um, so there was another contest that we did, um, and people have been pestering us about us pretty much nonstop ever since we forgot all about it. Um, and then we said we were going to get right back on it, and then we forgot all about it again, and then we were going to get right back on it. And so, uh, without further... And, 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 and just to be clear, when David says we, he means me. Yeah, yeah I mean I me. Mean, I mean David. I am speaking in the... <laughs> we speak in the royal we. Um, and so, um, just to make you guys absolutely crazy, let's go to Avdi now for the best of parlay. I forgot all about it. No. Um... <clears throat> So my favorite thread on on the uh, parlay list recently was the thread about uh, object initialization and construction and uh, why there is a a new and an initialized method and uh, you know and and how to, and why you might want to change those sometimes and sort of uh, mix things up and, and make your own constructors that do different things. And uh, I like that that thread so much that uh, I did a video response to it um, on Ruby Tapas um, and made that one of my free Monday episodes. So um, if you want to get get in on uh, awesome threads like that and uh, possibly have me make video replies, although no promises, check out the uh, Ruby Parlay list. I mean, Rogues Parlay. So uh, hey, does anybody remember Rogues Golf? No. No. Okay. All right. Um, me either. I guess we can just move on then. Um, Rogues Golf. Uh, we had a contest to have people submit, uh, the best, awesome, most surprise and delight, uh, uh, kind of, uh, golf, uh, short Ruby program that fits in a single tweet. And the, the scope and breadth of the answers we got, uh, were just absolutely astonishing. Um, we got back, uh, um, uh, a program that an, an interactive program that would let you download uh Ruby Rogues episodes. We got back a complete actually two complete working to-do list managers that fit in a single tweet. Uh we got back a program that prints out the entire Ruby object model, um object graph in memory as, as graph. And um this wasn't I, I say that part of the reason this got delayed is that when we finally did knuckle down and actually start grading these is we found it to be almost impossible to figure out how to judge there. It wasn't like apples to apples. It was like apples to spaceships. I mean, it was like, how do you even make a comparison here there? It, it was just absolutely insane. And it, it finally came down to, uh, we, we all kind of went around the horn, um, and cast our votes and our votes pretty much came up in an even split. And so rather than doing runner-up and winner, I, I went and talked to Chuck because he's the one who's actually paying for the prizes and said, we have to give out two prizes. And he said, okay. And so here are the results from the Ruby Golf contest. Um, Moonbeam Labs um, is in a tie for first place with Espheric. 
Um, we could not decide between uh, the to-do list app that Moonbeam Labs submitted. Um, I also rated uh, Moonbeam's uh, Shark Attack animation uh, as my, that was my number one favorite. It was astonishingly, astonishingly entertaining for just being eight characters or sixteen characters long of of uh, video display. Um, and Sarek posted the object graph dumper, and that was just an amazing bit of uh, screen art. Uh, that actually dumps out in high-res graphics. And uh, we thought those were pretty cool. So, uh, Spheric and Moonbeam Labs, if you will get a hold of us, um, or I guess we'll get a hold of you, won't we? Are you saying SF Eric? Sure, why not? (laughs) (laughs) That's Eric Michael Sober. Oh, okay, so... Um, yeah, so Spheric, if you will get, it's, alright, fine. Uh, <laughs> I don't know who people are. SF Eric, okay, alright. I, I assume from this that he lives in Cupertino, right? According to the Apple TV, yes. Okay, alright. Uh, so yeah, SF Eric and Movie Labs, I guess we'll get a hold of you, we'll actually do some legwork on our own, fine. Um, and let you know that you've won, and this will be the official announcement going up on the website next week. Congratulations, guys. Yes. Congratulations. All, and everybody who submitted. This is a, I'm doing a golf clap. Nice! A Ruby golf clap. Be sure to stop before you reach 140 characters. <laughs> that was a lot funny in my head. Okay, so let's talk about open source licenses. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, Chris and Jeremy have now fallen asleep. And, uh, we Wait, have, What was that? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, so, so let, guys, I, I want to start by asking you why you care about open source licenses. Uh, well, this is Jeremy. Um, I, I think it stems from my sort of, uh, I sort of like understanding the legal issues around open source software and just trying to play with them. Cause to me, the law is almost like a program. You know, you've got all these branches and conditions and things where stuff needs to take place and preconditions and what happens with, with this and uh, what happens with that. And then, um, licensing is, is just one of the pieces that fits into the mix. And it's, I just find it kind of interesting to see how people license stuff and why they license things and why they license them the way they do. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I was, I was going to jump in too. Like, I think all of the, you know, all of that, but also I think it's kind of an interesting philosophical position, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, this, the sort of principle of sharing things and kind of a hacker ethic, you know, and I, I, I think that's what originally drew me to things like that. Okay, cool. So is it jumping right to the end of the episode if we ask you guys what your favorite license is? No, not at all. And uh, I have to say it probably depends on the reason. Uh, my personal license that I use is uh, the Internet Software Consortium license, which is the same one as OpenBSD. And I basically use it because I think it's the absolute shortest one that makes uh, the most legal sense. So it, it's a functionally equivalent to the two-clause BSD, but it's shorter. Okay. So how is that? Um, so the, the, the WTFPL is actually much shorter. Um, how does it compare to uh, – you guys are familiar with that one, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. We we can't actually say the full name of it uh, on the show and without losing our family friendly writing, writing rating, um, but that's the do what the heck you want license, um, and it has one clause which is do what the heck you want. Um, do you think that's a legal document? And if so, how does that compare with like like? Give me a difference between that and the BSD that you mentioned. Not the BSD, but the Internet Consortium. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I yes, I it is. 
definitely. Well, I am not a lawyer. You know, got to please and put all that stuff in there. Um, yes, you know, anything that two people agree on, I think, is considered a legal document. I mean, you can write a check, a legal check, on a napkin if you wish. Um, but uh, in terms of you know acceptance, should it come into a more formal setting or something like that, I'd, I'd probably prefer something that uh, that was maybe somewhat vetted by lawyers before I used it. Okay. So what's the uh, what is the OpenBSD versus uh, slash Internet Consortium license in a nutshell? Uh, it's basically acknowledge that uh, I wrote this code and you can do whatever you want with it. Okay. So and when you say acknowledge, it means like it's when you distribute it, the code itself has to have a, a note in it that says somebody else wrote it. Originally. Yeah, it's basically it's basically put the uh, put the copyright notice in, and um, you're welcome to do with this as you please. Uh, just keep the copyright notice in. Right. Now, my, my understanding is that copyright is actually the foundation for all of the open source licenses. That that you have that establishing your copyright or claim, you know you know saying your copyright is how you get to control the the intellectual property. Such and that such that you can license it in particular ways. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's my. Go ahead. Oh yeah, I, I was just gonna say yeah. I think that's my understanding of it. It all stems, I believe, from intellectual property law, and I think there's four intellectual properties. You've got copyright, patent, trademark, and trade secret. Or I probably got them wrong, but I'm pretty sure that patent, copyright, and trade secret are three of them. I forget exactly what the fourth one is. And a license is saying I'm I'm licensing this creative work uh, to someone else. Cool. Now, now, how does that contrast with um, public domain? Public domain is you, you know, there's interesting stuff about public domain. I think the Creative Commons uh, uh, has much better blog posts and, and information on public domain than I can probably say real quick. But from my understanding, public domains is you are you are saying that this is non-copyrighted uh, work. So I'm placing it in the public domain. I do not claim authorship of it. Uh, I'm putting it in the public domain. But, but that doesn't mean someone else can pick up the copyright and claim it. You know, right. I, yeah, something along those lines. I, there's there's a weird legal issue there that I don't know if has ever been tested. But um, if you want, you can, the, like, SQLite is public domain. Oh, Nice. Yeah, there's, this is one of those things where I think we would need a copyright lawyer um, <laughs> because I think you can pick up pu public domain and build a derivative work that, you know, adds one comma to it and then you can copyright the whole damn thing. And um, you can't enforce copyright against the public domain half of it, but you can enforce public domain on, or you can enforce copyright on the thing that you made out of it. Even if, and in fact, I think it, even if all you did was reprint it, which gets into, remember the Mars rover landings getting shut down by the news because they rebroadcast it? And NASA was basically saying, no, we put these out, you know, for free, and some news channels rebroadcast it and then saw the rover landings and they issued C and D's against it on YouTube, um, and and they got away with it for like two two days, you know, before somebody said, "Pull your heads out, guys." <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, there's some interesting stuff with public domain in that not every country recognizes that there is a public domain, so everything is copyright by default. And so it's you can't actually place something in the public domain. Um, and so, so that's one of those interesting things where if you don't claim the copyright, then you have it by default. 
that was the other thing I was going to say that we need a lawyer here because I've heard people make the argument that there's no such thing as public domain. And I want to know what that means because I've, I've heard this term that, you know, copyrighted works, works if the copyright is not renewed, it enters the public domain after so many years. And, and Project Gutenberg is copying all these books because they are now supposedly in the public domain. But yeah, we need a lawyer. <laughs> okay. So you guys have talked about what your favorite open source license is. Uh, well, maybe... we need Chris's. I don't think we got it. Oh, 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 right. Yeah. Chris, tell us about Oh, your... yeah. Yeah. I will. I, so on personal projects, I generally use like a GPL and on some website stuff that I've done, I've actually used the AGPL. And, uh, I think there's this like, uh, I remember seeing this big chart somewhere. I should go find this, but you know, it's, it's kind of a flow chart of like which license is right for me. And like the AGPL one is like cuckoo banana, you know, boingo or something you know it's just like you know that's the yes you know then then you want the agpl <laughs> so can you can you characterize those um briefly if that's even possible oh, and and then talk yeah. about why you like them sure sure uh so both both the agpl and gpl are uh copyleft and so the basic idea that kind of separates them from something like bsd is just that if you change anything, make any kind of derivative work, that derivative has to have the same license. It has to be also GPL. So this, you know, this idea you can't kind of like, you know, proprietorize something, you know, you couldn't swoop in and grab the BSD, or I mean, in the way that you can do that with the BSD, you can't do that with like the GPL. That's, that's kind of like, I think that's really the essential difference. Okay. So I'm trying to picture the, a license, a flowchart that involves crazy on it. And so I'm like, so what are the decision points? Like, have you ever donated to the EFF? Are you willing to sue somebody over this? You know, it's like, how many yeses do you have to go down to get to the AGPL? <laughs> well, I think pretty far. But it's it's uh, <laughs> basically the AGPL is just expanded a little bit so that when you it's it's kind of uh and this is just my understanding of it but it's when you're using something as a web app then i the user of your software as a service should also be able to have the source code to it oh wow okay that that was the big dodge around uh, gpl2 was right, right. Pe- people would basically say well i'm i'm providing a service not providing the software right yeah, that's this- that's oh sorry <laughs> I was going to say it all. I think all of this boils down to uh, what the the distribution clause in in all of these licenses, where you say, okay, if I'm going to distribute the software, then you have to distribute the der- to the derivative work. And so, what the Afero, from my understanding, what the Afero closes the loop on is, you know, if you had a, a GPL uh, software as a service, well, you're not distributing the software; you're distributing the data or the service application. Um, and so the Afero GPL closes that loop and says, okay, well, if you are distributing a service over this code, then you also need to be able to distribute the, then anyone who uses the derived work, which would be the service, also needs to have access to the source code. Yeah. So this would be like, like WordPress almost. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. If, I, I don't think they're, they're using that license, but that would be an example of it, right? There's actually a good real-world um, uh, example right now is that MongoDB, the server, is a Faro GPL, at least the last time I checked. And so from my and then, but uh, so then if you altered the MongoDB server 
and then started providing a service that gave people direct access via the um, to the wire protocol that MongoDB speaks, and you were using your derived server, then uh, you would be required to release the source code for your derived server. Wow. So, and this is this is also, I think, I believe why MongoDB. If you look at all of the adapters, they're all Apache. So the the adapters are Apache, and the server is a Faro GPL specifically, so that you you know you can the Faro GPL you know if you want to call it its virality uh, doesn't leak out past the adapter. That yeah. was going to be my next question. Yeah, okay. So, and that's that's limiting. I mean, so one of the things that does right is is it limits embrace and extend. So. You know, a big vendor can't take the the software, add one you know one new and, and highly prized feature, and start offering that as a as a proprietary you know as a software as a service, and then everybody starts depending on that feature and and you know and and then they're locked in because that's the only vendor that that offers that feature and maybe they got a software patent on it or something, um that that says that no if you add if you add a feature to the server, it has to go. Uh, even if you're just offering it, you know, as a service, you know, and running it internally, uh, that feature still has to go back into the community. Yeah, correct. Okay, so that prevents fragmentation of the community of people using that software. As well as preventing lock-in, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, and there's also another, um, some people will, like, if you look at a Neo4j, its advanced and enterprise versions are also a Faro GPL. And so... Um, Another way you can go around this, if for people, for specifically for I think for people that are creating products that they want to sell, um, using the Afero GPL for your say your your free version, but then if someone actually wants to buy a proprietary license because they want to do something with it, then you offer that as a dual licensing. So you can say, hey, if you want to use it for free, you better contribute back to the community. But if you want to use it for profit, um, then you can feel free to pay me for it. Well, if if you want the license changed. Right. Correct. If you want the license changed. Right. Okay. Can, can you talk a little bit about dual licensing? Because we we see that a lot these days. The, and so, I, like like what, like what does dual licensing mean? Yeah, this is an area I'm not really all that familiar with. I mean, my guess is you you can you can dual. Well, actually, Ruby itself is dual licensed. Right. Yeah. It's so it, there's like a you, Ruby license and a. Yeah, I believe it's, uh, you can use the software under the license below or the, um, GPL v2 or something like that. I think dual licensing just means you as the person who is using the software you've downloaded, you can choose, um, how you use it internally probably really doesn't make a difference. It's how you then redistribute your derived work, which you can pick which of the previous licenses you would like to use to redistribute your, your, uh, when you distribute your derived work, you should be able to pick which of the licenses that it came from uh, as the one that passes through to your direct work, if that made sense to anyone. <laughs> yeah, well, <clears throat> yeah, I was actually going to ask about uh, a, a, re- a related thing to that, which is uh, relicensing, where somebody takes something that's, you know, under the WTFPL um, or the, you know, the, 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 the OpenBSD license, and then they relicense it under, like, say, MIT, which is similar but slightly, you know, it, it offers some of the freedoms but like restricts a little bit more, or it or it restricts and opens a little. It changes the rules of the licensing. Do you do either of you guys like know like what the rules of thumb are for relicensing? Uh, well, you can't relicense something unless you are the copyright holder, as far as I understand it. So okay. if you are taking a derived work 
and say you're adding code to it, then uh, your additional code can be licensed. Since you are the copyright holder of that code, then you can license your portion under one license, and then the piece that you're bringing in from your upstream project is licensed. You are redistributing it under its license, unless the license uh, specifically says you can redistribute under a different license. Okay. Yeah, I think a I think a good example here is kind of the difference between Linux itself and like a GNU project software because typically they they have you actually assign the copyright to the Free Software Foundation versus Linux which I believe everybody holds their own copyright in that. Hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, there, so I'm also a Fedora contributor, so I help package a few RPMs for them. And one of the things we do as a Fedora contributor is you sign the, uh, the con- contribution license agreement, which says that everything that you contribute to, uh, the Fedora project is, you know, licensed appropriately. And so all of your works, you know, the, like the RPM spec files and any init scripts you write and things like that all become licensed under the licenses that the Fedora project uses. Okay, I, I I can see how they would want to have control over all the IP that goes into their into their code base. That I can see that from their perspective, that makes sense. Uh, but you don't see that in a lot of things. There's um, like people contributing to Ruby on Rails. Rails is licensed MIT, uh, which which is a very permissive license. It basically says we're not responsible for what you do with our software. It's, is I, th- I think the limitation on it. The, it, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on that. But the, but I, I've, I, I don't think I've ever seen, a, or, or at least I've never worked on an open source project that, um, that I had to agree to, basically anything about what I was contributing. The, you know, I've, you know, I've put in a bunch of patches to Rails, but I never, I never signed anything, you know, assigning them rights to the stuff that I contributed. Like I've never done this, but I know that if, like if you want to get something into Emacs core, um, there's an there's something that you have to sign. Um, yeah, um, I was uh, one of my coworkers has done uh, some closure stuff, and I believe there's like a contributor agreement for closure. And I I'm sort of of the opinion that uh, Rails probably should have a contributor license agreement because down the road, uh, someone who contributed a patch to something because. Technically, by default, at least in my understanding, is that, you know, Josh, one of your patches that you contributed, technically you own the copyright to that patch. So mm-hmm. you can assert whatever license you want on that patch. So, you know, you could down the road say, well, actually, you know, my copyright on all the patches I've done are now a Faro GPL. Uh, <laughs> wow. And, and yeah, so that's something you could do. But if you had signed a contributor license agreement at some point, and said, um, these are, these, uh, are we, as a contributor to Rails, uh, I am going to uh, guarantee that I'm going to, I give to the Rails, you know, you know, consortium or something like that, the, uh, whatever the license is, and it, and it's going to be licensed under MIT, um, just so that there's no confusion down the road should a legal issue ever happen. Yeah. So it does, it does kind of prevent some company c- coming along and trying to be a patent troll about it or something like that. Uh, that was one of the the causes of like the Emacs X Emacs split, which I, I realize nobody listening has any idea what that even is. But but uh, there was a fork of Emacs called X Emacs, and uh, they they were much it sort of trailed behind for a long time because it didn't have as much much cool stuff rolled into it 
And, uh, the reason was they were very, the, the FSF, you know, the Free Software Foundation were very serious about getting these contribute, these agreements, you know, making sure that the copyright was, was, for every change was signed over to, to them, um, you know, so that none of these issues would ever come up and the XM, uh, XEMAX was, was a lot more freewheeling about it. So yeah, it's, I think, I think you're right. I think, um, uh, that is a little bit, um, unsettling to, to think that, you know, Somebody could assert a claim like that um, with Rails at some point in the future. Okay, so so that's like, ooh, we're worried about the future. Have have we seen stuff like this happen in the past? Is that you know, have people done things like that? Have have there been legal fights over over contributions to open source? Oh, I'm sure there are, but I can't think of any right off the top of my head. <laughs> I'm having the but same I, problem. I know there have been, yeah. but I'm, I'm having trouble thinking of of an example. Yeah, I mean, I'm not uh, trying to belittle the issue. I just I'm curious if there's examples that we can look at. There's a really good podcast called like uh, Free is in Freedom, and it's it's two lawyers and they're mostly kind of concerned with like free software type stuff. I think I think they may both work for like the Free Software Foundation, but it's pretty interesting because they did an episode about enforcement, and it seemed like a lot of what the enforcement boiled down to was they would just kind of say, hey you know, you're inappropriately using this license, could you please just release the source code? You know, and it usually stopped there. You know, it, it doesn't really seem to go to court. There was a, uh, what's his name? Uh, Stallman. Um, R- sorry, RMS, Richard F. Stallman. Um, he, he wrote an email to the Emacs mailing list. This was about a year ago. It kind of made new, you know, made headlines in very small circles. Um, there was a version of one of the versions of Emacs had a, had a library that was they were distributing the ELC file for it, which is the compiled ELISP, but they did not have the .el for it. And RMS found out about it, and he wrote an email to the list and said, uh, "We are absolutely in flagrant violation of you know the, the entire reason I wrote this you know and gave it to the you know the the whole you know Free Software Foundation all that's you know the." Basically, everything I believe in, you know, this is now being violated. So here's what needs to happen. We either, you know, we need to pull these things out of Emacs. We either need to, what did he, what did he say? We either need to d- add the source code in, or we need to re- remove these libraries from Emacs. And we need to go back t- to the mirrors and find all the old copies that have it. And we either need to add source code or remove those libraries from the old versions. And... Mm-hmm. It made it made a ripple in the community because he was proposing tampering with existing, you know, shippable known binaries with you know known MD5 you know checksums and whatnot. And he was like, "No, this this has to go. We are in violation of our own you know our own licensing agreement." Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's sort of along the same lines as what uh, OpenBSD did in 2001, based on some licensing wording. They did a systematic line by line audit of the entire source code base to find out if uh, every line of code that was not in compliance or ambiguously licensed or unlicensed or everything. So they contacted every single copyright holder of every line of code and to make sure that all was uh, all was done and anything that they couldn't track down, track down was actually removed. Hmm. I think my, my favorite example, this isn't exactly like an example. This is an example of, of somebody asserting uh, copyright over open source code, but I guess like my favorite example of just, the effect that a license can have and the effect different licenses licenses can have um is just contrasting the early unixes uh with linux you know when the the unix source code 
entered the entered the wild, so to speak. You know, originally from uh, AT&T, right? It kind of splintered, you know, and you had these different you had these different forks spring up, and they they gradually sort of uh, grew apart. And you had different companies introducing their own versions uh, that that had you know new stuff built in that was you know special and awesome to that company, and then and you know and and then you had programs that were only compatible, you know, with one company's, you know, HPUX or, or Sun's Unix or, or whatever. Um, and then you look at, uh, and you know, you have this really splintered Unix e- ecosystem. Now you look at, at Linux, which has, you know, become kind of the, the dominant player these days. And after all these years, it still has not had a fork. Um, you know, I mean, people obviously fork the source code and, and, and play with it all the time, but, but everything's still, um, eventually gets rolled back in if it's if it's worth getting rolled back in um, and I think that would not have happened if it were not for the GPL so I think for some of these like infrastructure things it really does make sense to to be careful about licensing well and you could also make the argument that there's a hundred forks of Linux um, right I mean there's Mandrake Linux there's Ubuntu there's Kubuntu. well I'm talking I'm, I'm talking about the kernel yeah and, well, and uh, we have and not seen a kernel fork yes. and that's 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 yeah. what you saw with the you know, with the other, with, with early Unix and is, is you saw, you know, kernel forks, you saw incompatible yeah. kernels going out there and with different, different, uh, APIs. Yeah. Um, and, uh, that just has not happened. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I'm, I am in violent agreement with you in that the, the way Linux is structured is such that the, the place where people want to be creatively different is on a nice little boundary outside the kernel. Sure. Go ahead and put whatever, you know, you know, GNOME or KDE, go for it. We don't care. Right. Um, but you know, if you if we want to argue about how this kernel operator method works, then let's actually work it out and sort it out and merge it back into. Because nobody's going to pick up your Linux kernel if you know if it's not compatible and rolled into the standard Linux kernel, which is awesome. Yeah. So sort of shifting gears here slightly. I mean, Chris and I mentioned our licenses. How about the rest of you guys? What do you prefer? Well, I use. Um, I mean, I I kind of follow trends um that you know in the ruby community which is just like use the mit license for for most gems um i did recently gpl something um and i had a specific reason for that i i, I released my my kluge stack of 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 ebook processing um tools uh not really stack of tools really just like the the tool chain that ties ties various other tools together and i gpl that and i gpl that because Gosh darn it! This is my special sauce, and I put a lot of work into it. And if somebody else is gonna, you know, I, I if if somebody else wants to to write eBooks and you know and and have you know convert them into lots of nice formats and sell them, I am all for that. That's fantastic. But uh, if they're gonna improve the improve the process, then I want those improvements to go back into uh, you know back into the community. Did you GPL v three? I believe I did. Okay. Yeah, well, I'm thinking I, now I, I should probably a Faro GPL it because I don't want the I don't want the uh, the service loophole either. What does a Faro mean anyway? I, I think it was a I think it was a case or a person, right? I I know very little about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, I don't uh, even know how to spell it without. Looking <laughs> I was going to say it's it's usually the Pharaoh and he's the king of Egypt, but. <laughs> I, th- I think he also has a small talk VM out there. I'm not sure. <laughs> must, must be used in a, in a pyramid. <laughs> Here's what uh, we're gonna do. You guys, the claws. You two guys go out and find two other guys to write software. 
Uh, well, the according to uh, Wiktionary, uh, it's it's from um, from Latin, and it means to carry forth or conduct. And or according con- or contribute or offer something. And according to the uh, Wikipedia page, the uh, Faro General Public License was published by Faro Incorporated on March two thousand two. That's interesting. Wow, it's a, that's interesting that it has that that uh, connotation of contribution. The the Latin root uh, fer means bearer or carrier. So like like aquifer is a water bearing region. Uh, Lucifer is a name that means light bearer. Yeah. So Josh, what's your favorite license? Uh, I think the only license I have ever used to release my code is MIT, and uh, some of that was just I I you know I started doing that because that was what Rails did, and it seemed like a uh, you know, I've, I don't think I've ever really written any code that was seriously valuable to anyone. So I just want to put it out there in a way that makes it most easy for other people to use. I, I've thought about using the Apache license, uh, but I don't, I don't know that there's a huge difference between that and the MIT license. I do everything under MIT just because when I do a bundle gem in, you know, or a gem or a bundle gem rather. It puts the MIT license in there for me, and it's like, yeah, okay, and yeah, everything I've done, I'm, I just, yeah, I want the maximum amount of grease on it to to get it to other people, and if other people want to take that and parlay it into something, um, oh, correct use of the word parlay, by the way, um, <laughs> correct use of the wrong spelling of parlay, I should put it that way. Uh, if they want to parlay that into a commercial product, go for it. That's fine, you know. Um, and maybe I should be doing like a Creative Commons um, because then I could then assert that you know if you if you are going to turn this into a product you have to have to give me credit for it. Uh, but right now I just MIT license because it's it's easy and I'm lazy. I I have used the Creative Commons license for my blog. Oh yeah, that's true. So, mm-hmm. I have to. Yeah, that that brings up another type of licensing. We we've got licensing of our source code, but then you've also got the licensing of of a of additional creative works that you know that you might consider blog posts, uh, data streams, uh, you know, more publication type things, which is where I think most people are probably going to use Creative Commons type things, you know, images, those types of stuff. Right. You know, I've been Creative Commons licensing um, my uh, podcasts for um, for over fifty episodes, and nobody has remixed it yet. You need to be sending free copies of your podcast out to like Scorg and to Skrillex and. Uh... <laughs> the, uh, the Skrillex public license, which requires that you remix it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I want the, I'm just going to throw this out as a listener challenge. I have, I have no prize to offer you except for maybe we'll play it on the podcast. But yeah, I, I totally want to hear. Of, you know, Avdi's voice mixed into just some sick drops and just, you know, just, you know, should it be new or initialized? Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. So moving right along. The, uh, what, what are the, what are the problematic licenses? I mean, I, I, I know that I have, um, you know, when, when I, when I worked at Pivotal and, we did a lot of client work. You know, I worked on a lot of client projects. We were uh, really careful about what software licenses uh, we include. You know, 
you know, if we included uh, gems or libraries or whatever into the project, we were really careful about avoiding GPL licensed software because you know the the lawyers who set up the contracts with the clients. Yeah. You know, it was just it was um, you know we're we're just you know very careful to avoid that stuff because it could cause big problems for the clients down the road. Um, yeah, so I sort of have almost the exact same experience. So, um, uh, company I work for Collective Intellect was acquired this year. And part of that acquisition process was auditing all of our code for the various licenses to see what was, uh, what was appropriate and what wasn't. Mm-hmm. And, um, we actually did have to make a couple of changes, uh, and swap out some libraries we're using because the licensing, uh, was not acceptable by our acquirer. So yeah, there's, there's definitely some, um, and, you know, each each customer or, or company or something may have a different requirements. And in our case, GPL wasn't a problem. In our case, it, it turned it out to be the academic free license was the one they didn't really like. And the Mozilla Public, uh, and there's a couple others. And I think most of those are the, the longer ones that have more to do with Patent issues are depending on the companies that are involved. They, they, the ones that, the ones that branch out into patents, I think a lot of, a lot of companies might have uh, some issues with. Are you talking about like reciprocal licenses, things like that? Does um, like a reciprocal public license and? What's a reciprocal license? I, th- I, I think that's something that they use if you want to like cross license things with other companies. Hmm. Oh, you mean like reciprocal patent agreements where, you know, company A has got 40,000 patents and they said, well, we'll, we'll migrate the 40,000 patents with somebody else if, you know, we'll, we'll just swap patents, that type of thing. Yeah. yeah so the, I, I mean, I'm looking at, there's like a reciprocal public license page on Wikipedia and it says that it requires that you reciprocate the benefits you derive. So, oh, yeah. yeah. So, it, so it's one no of those clue. viral licenses. Yeah. Okay. So that's not what I was talking about, but that's, um, no, that's, that's some of the stuff that's, I think in GPL v3 has to do with, you know, um, various different patent issues and litigation. So that if you, you know, uh, sue someone for patent issues, then your license is revoked or various different things like that. So, right. You know. Right. Yeah. And by, by the way, I love that, um, that Yammer and Twitter and a couple companies, it, we've mentioned this on a podcast before that they have, uh, the patent agreements that the or the patent assignments that their employees you know sign when they when they file the patent software is basically gives the employee the right to uh, basically uh, license anybody so so if if I so if I worked for Twitter and I invented something and then Twitter patented it and I assigned the patent to Twitter I retain a, a non transferable right to um, to basically indemnify someone against getting sued by Twitter for violating the patent. Yeah, those so. that, that actually is something I, I wanted to chat with a lawyer about because uh, it sounds really interesting, and I wonder how that would actually work. Um, you know, if if, uh, if if part of the, I guess it's the Innovators Patent Agreement is apparently yes. what it's called. Right, and, yeah. you know, and I haven't... Um, I, it, because the inventor is, it looks like, you know, this is two seconds of looking at it real quick, is, uh, it looks like the inventor is allowed to sub-license the patent. So that means, you know, they could give someone else, uh, a license to the patent without their parent corporation's, uh, say, uh, uh, um, negating of it. Yeah, but, I, but I think that's, um, that the, there's some provisions in there that you can only do that if the, if the parent company is, is suing the company for 
kind yeah, of you're right. You're right. It's it's paragraph two. Right, it, and and it it seems like a nice a nice thing to do. I don't know if you know how much of an effect it's going to have on patent trolling, but you know it, it could be significant. I think it could be significant, and I and I actually look forward to seeing some more stuff along these lines. So now would be interesting is if we could get a patent troll to get all of these and then also tag this on to all of the patents they're trolling. So, you know, sort of a positive patent troll. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, no, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, idea, ideas want to be free. That's uh, that's kind of the whole point of the virality of, like, GPL3, though, right? Is yes. is to attempt to try and basically reverse patent troll these. Okay. So uh, we we talked... So I've, I've had the same thing where... where Businesses, yeah, they, they just, like, the GPL is, it, it's like sunlight to a vampire. They're just like, ah, ah, And there's a part of me that's been very frustrated working in the corporate sector by, you know, ah, oh, this is GPL, we can't use it. And then um, the whole thing with Hudson and Jenkins and Oracle happened, and I realized, no, this is exactly, you know, this whole sunlight to a vampire thing Let's be clear here. The corporations are the vampires. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Oracle, they, they tried to do the embrace, extend, uh, exterminate, uh, thing to Hudson. And, um, the, the guys. And US integration server, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it was, they, t- they took Hudson and, you know, they, they basically threw a lot of money at the developer. I don't know the exact details, but they, they threw some money at it and acquired it, but it was open source. It was GPL. And so the, there's still this open source community contributing to it and, and, and playing with it. And, um, the open source community, Oracle then sat on it and did nothing with it. And the open source community said, well, we've got all this stuff we want to add. And Oracle's like, yeah, well, when we get around to it. And the open source community said, screw you. We're forking this and we're going to keep doing it our own thing. And Oracle said, well, we've copyrighted the name. We've trademarked the name Hudson. You can't use it. And it took all of, like, one night on IRC for the entire community to agree, okay, our new name is Jenkins. (laughs) And they released Jenkins the next day, and it was better than Hudson. And all because they were in obviously in an open fight against Oracle, patches started flooding in because people actually felt like they had a dog in the fight. So Jenkins accelerated very quickly in front of Hudson because, you know, it was, you know, the underdog. Let's go help them. And, um... Oracle came to their senses uh, a month or two later and said, okay, guys, we're sorry. You can have the name. Can we please have your code? And um, they're like, yeah, but you can't change the license. And Oracle's like, okay. And so it's, it's Hudson again. And it's, it's back mm-hmm. under the auspices of uh, Oracle. But they've, the community made it very clear that, you know, we are not under your thumb. We're under your aegis if you want to give us that, but we are not under your thumb. It was very cool. Yay. Woo, open source. Yay, Dave told a story. Okay, cool story, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so. uh, the, yeah, I, well, I think... Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I'm curious if... The, I mean, so clearly from from Oracle's perspective, they, they got um, pretty toasted by some open source licensing. Uh, so from a, from a corporate perspective, there's definitely risks involved in, you know, what licenses are associated with code that you're using? I, I'm I'm kind of uh, careful about things myself as I'm as I'm building software for my startup, in that someday we may want to take funding, someday we might get merged or acquired, and part of that process is due diligence, and people are going to come take a look at our our code and audit it, just like you were talking about, Jeremy, 
and that uh, you know they might look at our code and say, oh, hey, you know, there's some GPL stuff in here. You know, your IP sucks. We don't, we don't want to fund you. So I, I mean, is that I mean, am I just being a little paranoid there? Or is that or is that I, a real concern? I think uh, at least in my my single experience with this type of situation is uh, is it you know there's a process you have to go through. Uh, and then based on that process, you'll have some remediations that need to take place. So like in our case, we swapped out one library for another and, you know, it took all of, you know, 30 minutes to RM minus RF and then, you know, uh, an extra four hours to replace the API calls that we had with a different library that provide almost the functionality, the same functionality. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I think just keeping track, I mean, from my total personal perspective, I think just keeping track of the libraries you use and knowing what their licenses are is good enough until you actually have to do something about it. Um, and at that point, you know, you, you know, you, you have company A that may be interested in your, in your, in your, in your business and company B that may be interested in your business and company A's requirements on what types of source code they're going to affect conflict with company B. So how are you supposed to, uh, think about two potential acquirers uh, with conflicting licensing requirements um, and satisfy both. You know, it's just not going to happen. So don't even worry about it until the issue comes up. So, so you're saying uh, yag me. I, well, I would say just be aware of what you're using and what their licenses are and just, you know, either just keep track of them all or things along those lines. Okay. I think that's that, that sounds reasonable to me. I, it, does, it does definitely feel like a, a little excessive paranoia to be, to be worrying about that. And, and obviously for startups, the most important thing is making progress. Yeah. I, I think I sometimes see that a lot, that there is this kind of uh, sort of fear of touching the GPL at all, you know, and I've, I've heard people say things like, Oh, well, you know, you can't sell GPL software, you know, and that, that isn't true. I mean, there's nothing in there about the, the cost dollar wise. It's, it all relates to the source, you know, and I mean, so there definitely are businesses that do sell, GPL software. I mean, that's kind of like Red Hat's thing. Yeah, exactly. And the big one is there is is not the the use of the source code; it's the distribution of the product. So you know that's why we have the Afero and stuff is for the distribution of the product as the data or something. But if you're if you're doing software as a service, then I, in my total personal opinion, I think that the vast majority you could probably care less what license anything is, unless you have some Afero stuff in there. Okay. Oh, you know, I remember something about TiVo and some issue that they had over open source licensing. The, yeah, this. Um, I think the I think the GPL v three actually mentions that in there. They talk about TiVoization, so they kind of mm-hmm. develop that term. And I think uh, I think what they're getting at there is this idea where you know you could have GPL software like in the TiVo. Uh, but it's, it's like signed, you know, like kind of hash signed. And so that if you actually went to go change any of the software, uh, you know, some chip on there would say, Oh, no, I'm not going to boot, you know, and so that even though you kind of, you might have the source and the, you know, the product, you, you wouldn't actually really be able to change it. So, so, so it's not a quote derivative work. You're just making use of it. Yeah, I, I think that yeah. I I think just the idea that that is getting at in this in the the point of that is that as far as the GPL v two is concerned, there's nothing wrong with that. 
But mm. then the GPLv3 says, oh no, there actually is something wrong with that because, you know, what we meant is that you're supposed to be able to actually meaningfully modify the software that you're running. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, the whole, like, the spirit of the GPL was always, you know, if, if, if you ship me a computer that has some software on it, then it's my computer now, and I should be able to change the software and, you know, and have it do something different. And, you know, and when you have, when you have kill switches like that, um, or poison pills like that, where if I change, change the software on my computer and now it won't work, um, that definitely violates the spirit. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. Good. And the, I mean, but I, I can kind of, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be that guy. I can kind of see TiVo's point, right? They're trying to prevent people from jailbreaking their devices. Right. Right, and, but you also have the, so I think part of the thing about licensing is, you know, you can call them viral, you can call them whatever. It's basically, I write, uh, I have a piece of software, I have a creative work that I have created, and I would like to, um, ensure that it exists in a certain form afterwards. And um, I'm going to choose a particular license that ensures my wishes. And if my wishes are, uh, I don't want anybody to change it, I want it in original form, or I don't really care, that's my choice as the creator. And it's your choice as the consumer or the user of it to pick something that matches your aims too. So it's, more, it's basically a contract between someone who's creating something and someone who is using something. And finding a mutually agreeable um, license is, uh, is part of the whole process. Yeah, right. actually, that's that's a yeah. I can see both sides. That's a you know, it's the you can see the side that um, okay, if you want to prevent people from jailbreaking this, then write your own damn source code. Um, you know, invest the money in programming it. And yeah, like I can see this going to be a legal thing where, well, but we didn't change the code and we are giving it out, so we are legally satisfying the creator's wishes. Yeah, and the creator's going, well, that's not what we meant. Well, yeah. okay. I mean, it's, it's kind of. A, Kind of similar to like you know if I write a pop uh, a pop song and then some um, some political campaign that I don't agree with starts using it as their as their anthem, um, you know the we kind of we kind of recognize the the uh, the ability for artists to say no that's that's not something I want my my work associated with. Hmm. Interesting. Yes, I think that sounds similar. Hey hey, is it time for picks now? Do we have any last words before we move on to picks? Yeah, it's about that time. Sounds Chris, good to me. Chris, Jeremy, anything to wrap up? No, I'm good. Yeah, I think that's I think that's about it. Okay. Uh, Josh, do you want to kick us off? Sure. I have um, a relevant pick. Hmm. Uh, so uh, Pivotal Labs has created a piece of software called License Finder. And the point of it is that, uh, you know, as... as uh, I think it was Jeremy, you were saying, you know, just be aware of all the licenses of the code that you're using so that when you have to go through the process of auditing, you know what they all are and you can deal with it. Uh, that can be really hard when you're, do, when you're using like Ruby gems or, or bundler where you include one gem and that gem includes 25 other gems, you know, as dependencies. So it, it can be a, a pretty difficult process to, to understand what all the licenses are in the software. So uh, Pivotal wrote and has been actively maintaining uh, a package called License Finder, and you can you run this, and it will look through all of your dependencies in your project and tell you what all the licenses are. And it's it's incredibly useful for someone who cares about what the licenses are, like a consultant doing contract work. 
So I definitely. wish I had heard about that, say, I don't know, three or four months ago, because I essentially wrote <laughs> my own. Oh, oh, you did? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And did you release it under an open source license? Uh, I will eventually. Right now, it's a hack bunch of scripts, so I'm not really pleased with the code, so I don't want to show it to anybody. <laughs> okay. Well, well you have to release it. <laughs> yes. There you go. Yeah, that, that that's the uh, that's the the shame shame license. I don't know. <laughs> uh, go listen to our episode on getting started in open source. Yeah, <laughs> right. you, just just release it, dude. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, well, or maybe you can look at uh, Pivotal's <laughs> license finder and and contribute what you did there. And I think that's what I'm going to do. Okay. Cool. Uh, right. And then the other thing uh, that I want to pick is. Uh, there's this thing called the Global Day of Code Retreat. And uh, this is uh, something that Corey Haynes is behind. You know, he does he's, he does these uh, code retreats. And that it's like you get for a day uh, somewhere and uh, work on a bunch of coding exercises. And you throw away everything that you create because the point isn't, the, the work product, the point is the learning that you go through. So Saturday, December 8th, 2012, Global Day of Code Retreat. They have, I don't know, like 60 locations that are already signed up or may, maybe more than that now. And they're, uh, they're shooting to be in, you know, many more cities. And uh, last year, Corey did this. He like flew around the planet so that he could be in a bunch of different places uh, and check into the code retreats on that day. It sounded like quite the adventure. So um, I haven't been to a code retreat. I, ha- I haven't done Global Day of Code Retreat. I'm looking forward to participating in, in it this year. I think it could be pretty fun. I've, I've, I've done quite a number of code retreats with Corey, and I highly encourage everyone to go to at least once, if not half a dozen. I've actually done this before, and we had kind of a video chat set up, and so uh, we kind of kicked it over to like the next time zone, you know, and so it was kind of kind of cool. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, cool. So uh, that's it for me now. Awesome, uh, Avdi. You're on a tight schedule today. I didn't see that note before. Or I would have picked on you first. Do you want to go next? <laughs> sure. Um, oh, and and I'll uh, just say I I finally got to go to my first code retreat uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, very very worth it. Um, so I too have a relevant pick to last week's episode. Um, I, uh, something, this, this occurred to me, uh, we, we had the episode, I think it was last week on, uh, working environments and there was something in my working environment that's so like, so organically a part of my working environment that I barely even think about it anymore. But, uh, um, I, uh, I was comparing notes on desks with my friend Larry Marburger the other day, and it turns out we have practically sister desks, um, and and we both sort of came across ours by happenstance, and um, and the it, and I, it caused me to go and, and do a little bit of research. Well, actually, he did the research, and I just clicked on links, and um, it turns out that that the style of desk I I have is a style that originated, uh, I think, in like the 40s, the 1940s, um, and it's called a tanker desk, and. <laughs> Um, and I, I laugh because, uh, because in the, in the chat, David just, uh, typed tanker like mo- moments before I said tanker desk. So I guess he has one too. <laughs> um, so, um, anyway, it's basically, I think it's called a tanker desk because it is built like a tank. Um, it's, I, I don't know if they make them anymore, but apparently a, a number of companies made these back in like the forties, fifties, sixties, maybe seventies. Um, and they're apparently pretty labor intensive to put together, but, uh, they're, 
Uh, mine is made of heavy gauge steel. It is built like a locomotive and it weighs as much as one. Every surface on it is curved. There are like no sharp corners that you can, you can stub something on. It's all that like, you know, curvy 50s style. Uh, it's, it's painted this sort of nondescript greenish, grayish, bluish, um, d- disgusting color. Uh, and it's got this, I don't know, like, like mysterious formica-like uh, surface, which is abs- which is soft, right? You can write easily on it, and it's absolutely impervious to anything. And this desk has probably existed for many decades at this point. I got it on auction from um, for five bucks at an old job of mine. But when I when I um, I went and and actually looked this stuff up, it turns out that you can now that you can buy these. People will sell these um, these desks for like a thousand dollars. I so I could conceivably like repaint mine and sell it for a thousand bucks, but I never will because it's the best desk ever. Like even decades after its its manufacture, every single drawer on it is completely silent and solid and silky smooth. Like like you know the day it was manufactured, it's it's amazing. I've never seen a piece of office furniture this this solid. So if you can ever if you ever see one of these at like an antique store at an auction or something like that, pick one up. They're uh, they're great. Yeah, th- those are amazing. I, I remember I used to see them a lot when I was a kid. You know, it's like the, you know, in schools and doctors' offices and places like that. And and they're they're really heavy. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it fits with my it fits in, into my like my my uh, philosophy for buying tools, uh, like physical tools is um you know find a few that that look good and then pick the heaviest one. Um, and- <laughs> And it definitely fits into that. It's it's a it's a huge pain to move around, but my, but my goodness, I like it will never ever fall apart. I will be I will I will, you know, will it to to one of my kids. It's the line um, from Jurassic Park, right? It's like, what is it? I don't know. Are they are they heavy? Yes. Then it's expensive. Put it down. <laughs> yep. Um, and uh, it wouldn't be my picks without a booze pick. So um, I'm going to pick one of my my fine Pennsylvania local beers, uh, Trogues Troganator. Uh, double box. Uh, it's a uh, it's a it's a it's a double box, so you get two box for the price of one, and uh, it's a fine, rich beer for this time of year. If you see it, if you happen to be in an area where you can actually can get your hands on some trogues, I highly recommend it. Very cool, very cool. So yeah, I I have a an executive uh, model tanker. It's all done in what's well, a secretary's desk. Um, it's all done in mahogany instead of stainless steel. Um, but it's in the exact same style, and the right-hand drawer actually opens on a hinge sideways, and it's an empty chamber with a gigantic swing arm to conceal a typewriter. <laughs> That's so and, cool. And it, it had a mechanical underwood on it. I mean, we're talking like a 1940s-era typewriter on it. And uh, I just I, I needed the desk. I needed a flat space on it, and so I donated the typewriter to a friend of mine who actually collects uh, antiques. The desk wasn't in nice enough condition to donate. The handles are broken off and whatnot. But yeah, when I when I first got it, I opened up the little pencil drawer in the middle, and there was a ruler that it was like you know Creighton's carpet laying, and it had a five digit phone number on it. Oh wow. Yeah, it was very, very cool. So, um, so my picks, um, are pretty easy. This one is, I, I can't believe we didn't pick this last time. It's, it's straight out of the pre-call. 
Um, and it's, it, it should have been one of Abdi's picks, but maybe he's just too gracious and not crass enough to have picked it. Um, it's Cards Against Humanity. Um, all, all I can say is, uh, Abdi, did you say there's a, there's a clean version of this game called Apples to Apples? <laughs> yes. Okay. So, um, Cards Against Humanity is a, a card game where you are given, uh, everyone gets cards with words on them. And so you get cards like, like, like Avi was telling us last week, like you'll get a card that says charisma and then you'll get a card that says, you know, dead baby. Um, and then you get a card that says the Jews, you know, so I mean, this is not, you know, charged in any way, you know, whatever. And, um, and then you get, uh, like a card that says a romantic dinner just isn't the same unless you have, you know, and then somebody plays a card that says the KKK or whatever. Um, and so the, you end up making really inappropriate, uh, sentences and, and, uh, phrases, uh, with this game. Just flipping through the deck, um, I, I laughed so hard I nearly cried. Uh, I do want to warn the listeners it is definitely not work safe. Some of the cards are, are, many of the cards are R-rated and a couple of them are actually X-rated, especially if you put them in the right configuration. Um, and, 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 and David, the prize for winning is being excommunicated from the church. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, or in, or in your case, being baptized. So, you know, it's, it's, Thank it's, you. it's a revolving door policy. So, you know, if, if you lose, you lose big either way. So, um, yeah. So that's, uh, that's my first pick. Uh, my second one is, uh, the kitten cam. Uh, Animal Planet has, uh, put up a webcam inside a pet store. And, um, inside the kitten, uh, little, uh, playpen. And, um, it's every bit as cute as you think, and then about two orders of magnitude more. Cause you'll go, you think, oh, kitten camp, that's going to be cute. And then you put it up and you just put it off to the side. And I challenge you to not make cooing noises before the end of the day is over. Um, I actually fell asleep, uh, with it running on my laptop, uh, last week. And um, I now will fly into a murderous rage anytime I see somebody banging on the glass of a pet store because it scared the hell out of me. I was I was asleep, and then all of a sudden somebody bang 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 on the on the glass of the kitten cage, and uh, I'm like, leave those cats alone. I was napping, so uh, the kitten cam. That's uh, my other pick. I actually don't have a programming pick today, so the, that's where I'm just going to stop. Chris, have you got a pick for us? Uh, I was going to point people to this uh, talk that Douglas Crockford gave uh, called the JSON Saga. And it's pretty funny because he took sort of like the standard MIT license and then he added a clause in there saying, this software shall be used for good and not evil. Nice. And and in the talk, it's it's pretty funny because he goes on to say, you know, he gets lawyers contacting him saying, well, actually, you know, we, we, about that clause. And so it's yeah, it's it's good. Yeah, there's a there's a great piece on that. I don't know if it was that one or something else that basically that he uh, he wrote an explicit exemption for some company in there that says, yes, you can use this for evil if you wish. <laughs> right, right. You know, and so he has to. He's like, I don't want to embarrass the company by saying their name, so I'll just say their initials, IBM, you know, and people are just laughing. <laughs> That's awesome. They should just have the chutzpah to do, just pull, pull a Google and say, good is what we say is good. Okay, moving right along. <laughs> um, uh, Jeremy. 
All right. Well, I had had two, and I had to add a third because of Josh's code retreat. So the first one is a programming pick. Um, and if you guys don't know about the Avro file format, I think you guys should probably all use it. Um, I like it in terms of these uh, sort of the same vein, sort of the same vein as uh, protocol buffers and thrift and things like that. Except Avro also defines an on-disk file format, and uh, that's the main reason I use it. So you can have complex. Uh, record structures, and then you have an on-disk format that uh, is compatible and has checksums and compression and all that kind of good stuff. So, you know, don't use CSVs anymore. Use something like Avro. The other one is, uh, since Josh mentioned Code Retreat, I'm going to uh, give a shout-out to Gustin and the Floyd Code Retreat. I've been to it twice, and it is so much fun. You go out to Floyd, Virginia, in the mountains of Virginia, and uh, and hang out, and it's a two-day Code Retreat. So unlike most of them where it's a one, this is a two-day code retreat. So uh, you should all look at that and then uh, try to go if you can sometime. And then a totally non-technical one is I'm currently on vacation in New York this week, and I went to this amazing museum yesterday called the Museum of the Moving Image. And if you're interested in photography and film or the technology behind film or anything like that, or you just want to see a whole bunch of funny GIFs on the wall, um, then you should go to the Museum of the Moving Image. So... That's it for me. Hey, hey Jeremy, I just got to say kudos for pronouncing GIF correctly. <laughs> oh, yes. do people call it GIFs? Yes. Uh, a lot of a lot of younger kids do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they don't they don't know that uh it came from CompuServe. Yeah, it's yeah. It's just remember choosy perverts choose GIF. That's how you remember the pro- pronunciation. <laughs> Back when we all got our porn from BBSs, right? You're fired. You're fired. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. What are you all doing right. here, man? <laughs> okay. The sad thing is, is that anybody that that pronounces it wrong is is too young to remember the the choosy moms choose GIF commercial anyway. So, oh well. Great. So, uh, uh, next week we're we're doing our book club, right? Holy crap! I got to start reading that. <laughs> I, I did. It's I started reading it. It's pretty cool. Actually, uh, I actually own uh, it, it's service oriented architecture and rails by Paul Dix, right? No, it's service oriented service oriented design. Ah, okay. Crap! I've been reading completely the wrong book. <laughs> I've, it's like way too high level for what we're going to talk about. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yes, we will have Paul Dix on the show, and awesome. Uh, so, yep. So looking forward. Yeah, I in in my defense, I own that book and I read it like two years ago, and it's uh, we'll have we'll have lots of fun to talk about. So that's going to be fun. Um, I think that's actually a wrap. Are we done? I think we're done. Okay, this sounds is, good. This is where Chuck tells you to to follow us on iTunes and give us lots of uh, happy votes and follow us on Twitter and sign up for the Parlay mailing list and blah 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 blah. And Chuck yeah. does it better. And, and and don't forget the Ruby Newbie contest. Yes, yes. Please give us your submissions. We'd love to hear hear from you, and we'd love to have you on the show. Bye, everybody. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. Bye.